Welcome to this new podcast series by the Program in International Nutrition at Cornell University, or as we call it, the PIN Podcast. In this series, trainees in PIN will be interviewing an expert in the field of international nutrition and global health. Today on the podcast, our interviewers include four graduate students, including myself. I'm Kripa. Hello and namaskaram. Hey, I'm Elizabeth. Hola, soy Christy. Hi, and I'm Nidhi. And our guest for today is someone who conducts applied nutrition research in the South Asia region with a focus on programs and policies to improve maternal and child nutrition. She's a senior research fellow in the Poverty, Health and Nutrition Division at International Food Policy Research Institute, or IFPRI, based at IFPRI's Asia office in New Delhi, India. Dr. Purnima Menon, welcome to this podcast. We are really excited to have you. Thank you all so much. It's such a pleasure to be here as a Cornell alum. So Dr. Manon, to start with, could you tell us a little bit about your role or your typical day at what your job looks like? All right, so let me start with my role um, at, uh, at IFPRI. I've been based in the South Asia office since uh, 2008. And my mandate has been to, to sort of build a research program that is relevant and um, addressing sort of major uh, nutrition issues in the region. Uh, and also, you know, not just a scientific research program, but to build a research program that addresses issues of interest to people in the policy community, people who are running programs, making decisions, et cetera. So um, we've been building this program of research and policy engagement over the last several years. Uh, I have a large team of uh, colleagues at IFPRI who work with me on this and, and do a lot of the heavy lifting both on the research and on and on working with our policy partners. So uh, a usual day in my life, uh, you know, is sort of it includes um, time to do research and write papers. So you know, I, I I try very hard to not have meetings in the morning. Very very hard. So I try to block the first three hours of the day. Um, they're labeled quiet time on my calendar, and that's the time that I use to review papers, to write, um, to think about things that, you know, we need to do in our research or to read, but it's really time that uh, I try to hold, but it's not always possible. And then, uh, you know, beginning around 11.30 or 12 in my day, I have a series, you know, the meetings sort of open up. I, you know, because I have a lot of colleagues uh, I work with, and because we have many projects and sub-projects, we try to have uh, research group meetings for all of these different projects and sub-projects throughout the week. So, you know, almost every uh, afternoon we are having, you know, one sub-project or project meeting or the other, reviewing progress, you know, thinking about uh, different types of research issues, uh, things that we need to deal with. Um, one of the things we do is because we do a lot of policy engagement and I have a project, so then, you know, I'll talk about that in, in the seminar later, but uh, the project uh, involves a lot of communications and stakeholder management. So, you know, one day a week, we also have a meeting of our communications team, you know, really taking a look at what we are doing, you know, who we are engaging with, what we need to do, what some of the demands are. And then, you know, there's always meetings with other colleagues and counterparts in the nutrition community in India and in South Asia. So we have nutrition networks and collaboration groups that we end up spending, you know, spending time with, again, either sharing evidence with them or planning together with them. 
Uh, and then unfortunately, because I work in Asia and I do have a lot of research colleagues who are based uh, in other parts of the world and in the US, I end up having to tag on a few hours of my day for <laughs> meetings in the evening. So I spend a lot of my time with people. Uh, a lot of that is really good people time, you know, time to, to review, to think, to, you know, to plan together, to look at papers together, to look at data together. But I'm a big believer in, in routine processes and research group meetings and so on. So a lot of my day is spent on that. But yeah, a week where I lose my quiet time hours is not a good week for paper productivity and other such things. So I, I try to guard that, but it isn't always possible. Uh, because we do end up having to do a lot of responsive work, either with government counterparts, and and often those unblocked hours are the only ones available to work with them. So yeah, that's a usual day. Uh, I do a lot of writing, a lot of presentations, um, a little bit less data analysis myself these days. In the old days, I used to do more of that as well. That sounds like a very busy day and weeks. <laughs> so could you tell us a little bit about your career trajectory, like from University of Madras to University of Delhi and then to Cornell. So how did it all start? And just a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's, it, it's interesting because I, um, I went into nutrition because I was interested in the hotel industry and restaurants. And it was a good stepping stone to move from, you know, you study nutrition. It was a good stepping stone for people moving into the hotel industry. So that's how I began the work. And then it turns out, you know, I didn't go into the hotel industry. I got very interested in uh, sort of all the biology and physiology that I studied in the context of, of my nutrition training and then decided to, to continue on in, in that field. And, and then I did my master's in the University of Delhi in, in nutrition. And it was in the context of doing my master's that I actually got exposed to, you know, to maternal and child nutrition. So we actually learned about the Guatemala trials then and I remember being very fascinated by them, not realizing, you know, that I would come to Cornell years later and actually meet people like uh, Jean-Pierre, who were, you know, really sort of leaders in those trials. And it's also the first time I got exposure to public health programs. And, you know, that was very uh, influential. I still remember the first days when I saw Anganwadi centers, you know, in, in India's nutrition programs outside of Delhi. Uh, and so after my master's, I had a chance to work with Dr. C. Gopalan, who's known as the father of nutrition in India. Uh, and uh, interestingly, you know, his work in those days was translating, sort of reading all. So he would get sent a lot of the scientific journals, and then he would produce this monthly bulletin for people in India. It was called the Nutrition Foundation of India Bulletin. And I didn't know it then. I didn't know the label for it then. But what he was doing was putting evidence in context. So he was so I had the, you know, a tremendous opportunity to work with him for a year and a half, and I helped him with that bulletin. And it was really this effort to, to read the scientific literature that was coming to him in journals. This was pre-internet days. Uh, and you know, he was reading, distilling that evidence, and then writing essays and articles about what the latest scientific evidence meant uh, for India. So I remember you know, those were the days when we learned about the Barker hypothesis in, in the early 90s. So it was very, um, you know, I then ended up moving to the U.S. and, you know, was thinking of going to graduate school. But I had some time in between when I moved to the U.S. and when I ended up in grad school and I was looking around for things to do. I was based in D.C. in those days with my family. And that's how I, you know, ended up with an internship at, at IFPRI through some strokes of luck and kind people. And that was, that internship at IFPRI was very, very transformational. 
And I was actually, I, I had admission at Penn State to join them in the spring semester. But by then I had already been working with people at IFPRI and they were like, no, 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 for what you're interested in, you should really be going to Cornell, you know, wait it out, it's all right, it, it's gonna happen. And so I ended up doing that and, you know, I don't regret it obviously for, for a moment. So it was really, it was, you know, it felt like a real privilege to end up at Cornell after having, you know, met Cornell alumni at, at IFPRI and also having read a lot of that work in my, in my masters. That, you know, so that was the, the trajectory. But, I, you know, when I patch the story together now, I realized that I had had, you know, some really interesting experiences of studying biology, of studying and, and understanding, you know, seeing some programs and then also seeing and working with somebody who was really dedicated to this idea of evidence to policy, Dr. Gopalan. And, and I, I find myself in my daily job now, you know, I, I apply a lot of those principles and you know, sometimes I was like, wait a minute, you know, when I finished my master's, I was translating evidence for policy audiences. Here I am 20 years after my PhD, I'm still doing the same thing. <laughs> but it's, a, you know, I think it's a very important part of our daily job as scientists who, you know, who want programs and policies to work, to be doing this constant uh, evidence translation. <laughs> Well, that is a really fascinating journey. Uh, it's really amazing. I would love to hear some of your advice for uh, graduate students or young professionals that are still like defining what they want to do or like figuring things out. What are some things that you would have liked to know uh, in that stage that you know now? Uh, you know, I, I think the only, I'm still trying to figure a lot of stuff out. So I think I should first say that. Say that. I'm 20 years post PhD, you know, I'm doing a lot of things that I love. But I'm always, you know, thinking about, you know, what next and, you know, what kinds of things we should do next, even in our own research, you know, trying to figure out the best ways to do things to get, you know, to get people to pay attention to the research, etc. So I think at some level as, you know, we're always going to be figuring things out and figuring the next step out. And the best we can do for ourselves is, I think, to be open to opportunities, to be open to ideas. And above all, I think just to be open to the idea of learning all the time, you know, I, I, I find I am happiest when I'm, you know, learning, when I have the opportunity to learn. And when you're doing a PhD, you're learning a lot about, you know, science and research methods and other such things, you know, and then I think when you're doing sort of building a research career, you're learning about what it takes to put some of that, that into practice and do good research uh in more and more and more complex ways and with more and more and more different types of people and you know today I, I i think i'm still learning a lot of that and still excited about new methods and other such things but i'm learning a lot still about what it takes to take you know research to to policy and i think what's helping me is just this idea that you know one should be on a learning journey and and be open to to whatever comes your way and so I think that's my biggest piece of advice is, you know, just be really open to the possibilities because things can go anyway. You know, I certainly hadn't planned to come back to India, you know, when I moved to the US and I experienced doing research in an environment that is very different from doing research in an Indian institution or I, I, I felt very much at home there. And I felt like, you know, I just, I, I love this. I love being with people uh, in this very open environment and, uh, I had not anticipated coming back to India. My decision to take 
or apply for this job at IFPRI was made in precisely five minutes. You know, I was on a phone call and, you know, someone, my current boss was like, you know, so we were collaborators and she's like, you know, hey, we are opening an office in India. Do you think you might want to apply to that job? And I literally was like, mm, yeah, sure, you know, why not? And I hadn't thought it through. I hadn't thought about what that might entail. I don't know that, you know, it would have come so easy if I'd really thought through all the challenges and all the, you know, the things that might come about. It just took a chance, you know? Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, be open, keep your, you know, this learning mindset at all times, and you never know what opportunities come your way. So that's my biggest piece of advice. <laughs> oh, that is really great advice. Uh, I love learning as well. Um, so uh, it's really encouraging to see that learning never stops and you always keep learning more things and it's like so fulfilling. Switching gears a little bit, I would love to hear what some of the priority areas for IFPRI mm-hmm. for the next five, 10 years. Uh, you know, I, I, I can't say about IFPRI as a whole, you know, it's a whole okay. institution, right? But I can certainly say a little bit about, you know, priority areas and areas of interest for myself and my research uh, group and our, you know, our teams here. You know, we are very interested and remain interested in maternal and child undernutrition. You know, for us, it remains uh, a very big challenge. You know, the numbers in India are just too large to give up the energy that has been invested in this area and to move, um, you know, to move on that. But our interest in that is less, I think, in the discovery space, you know, of how children grow and what happens, uh, and much more in the context of, you know, when you have countries that have made big programmatic and policy decisions. And in fact, you know, you'll see this later too, is you know, India's is a policy and program ecosystem where, in a sense, you have everything you need to deliver multi-sectoral responses to nutrition, to solve the nutrition challenge. Uh, but the delivery is, is still being held back. There's a lot to do to innovate uh, and, and learn about how to make delivery work in a way that we can make multi-sectoral convergence happen where it needs to happen, which is that programs need to reach these households that these women and, and children are in. And so, I, you know, we remain very interested in that um, and in figuring out ways to make that happen. You know, how do we actually make these programs and policies come together for people um, in, in a very practical way? Uh, we're very interested in, very interested in adolescent nutrition. I think the more I look at uh, the challenge of undernutrition in India, the further and further sort of back we move in, in the life cycle, you know, you realize, okay, you know, it's not enough if we work in the postnatal period, it's not enough if we, you know, do some things during pregnancy, we have to go further and further back. And, you know, we've, we just keep ending up in, you know, we have to make sure that girls stay in school, that, you know, girls and boys are all, you know, they're well-educated, that they're not married too early. There's a lot of things that happen around social and biological drivers of the nutrition challenge that are happening in that age group. And so that is an age group that we are very interested in uh, doing research on. Um, And then, you know, even though we don't do a lot of work in overweight and and obesity, I think the idea that all forms of malnutrition are affected by, uh, by the quality of our diets through our life course, you know, I think that's something that we have realized is it doesn't matter if you're worried about anemia as an outcome or obesity as an outcome or poor child growth as an outcome, the quality of what people eat at every point in the life course matters tremendously. And so, 
you know, we remain very interested in just the issue of diets and, you know, how do we get healthy diets on people's plates at all points through the life course, you know, whether it's, and you worry about different things at different points in time. So, you know, the first foods idea is what's happening in the food systems that's around, you know, infants and, and young children. But it's, it's an issue that carries through the life course. So, so very, you know, we're very interested in that. And then, um, you know, there's a range of different programs, of course, that, that create and support the food systems for people in, in India and in South Asia. And, you know, I, I'm always telling people that, you know, what goes onto somebody's plate in, in a country like India is coming from the social protection and food-based programs. It's coming from, you know, what companies are selling in, in local areas. It's coming from local agriculture. And we really have to understand that in its fullness. It's not enough that we just look at one. So yeah, those are all things that we're very interested in and, and looking forward to, to doing research on. I work with a lot of very amazing colleagues at IFPRI. So, you know, really have an opportunity to work on a range of very interesting programs and areas of research, gender, social protection, all kinds of things. <laughs> Thank you so much for the wonderful insight, Dr. Menon. So you mentioned earlier about translating science to policy. So how do you balance the science and uh, policy pieces? Like uh, what are some of the barrier you encounter and what are some key takeaways? Um, so I, I, I don't, you know, I don't think it's so much barriers. I, I just like to think that everybody so, so firstly, I, I think, you know, anyone that I have met, you know, the minute they realize how important nutrition is, they become an interested party. It doesn't matter where you are. It's, it's easy for people to understand that this is important. You know, no one is questioning the importance of nutrition. That's an important starting point. But what, what I've also learned is that everyone who needs to act on nutrition uh, needs to go through a learning journey. You know, they have to sort of understand the, the subject, understand, um, you know, what the drivers of poor nutrition are, they have to understand the policies and programs, and then figure out, okay, what can I do from where I am? And I, you know, I, I think our biggest challenge as a field of evidence producers and, and communicators and all of that is to shorten the learning journey so that people can very quickly act on the problem from where they are and use the powers that they have where they are. So, you know, if, if I'm a, a, a bureaucrat running program X, that is my power zone, right? It is not, it, I need to understand what the role is of things outside of my, you know, immediate zone of control, but I also need to know what I can do very quickly from where I am today. And I think that's our challenge as evidence producers and, and communicators to help people really understand and help them where they are to do things. I have found, you know, policymakers to be very curious, to be very uh, thoughtful, to ask very tough questions. Uh, you know, policymakers are, uh, you know, they're, they're not just passive uh, absorbers of knowledge by any stretch of imagination. You know, they're asking tough questions to us all the time and forcing us and keeping us on our feet. And I really enjoy that. So, you know, so I think if, if there are any barriers to the uptake of evidence, you know, in a certain policy space, it, it's often that, the, you know, the person who needs to act on that evidence has certain constraints in their own jobs, you know, in, in what is possible. You know, you may have a constraint around budget, you may have a constraint around, you know, what 
people in the political sphere want and are comfortable with. And, and, and often what we find is that people can figure that out, but sometimes those things are hard constraints and we just have to, we have to understand that as researchers. I cannot just take, you know, some new solution that I have run in my efficacy trial that is going to be difficult for somebody to implement in the reality of their, their systems. I think we can do a better job when we understand the realities and the barriers that surround the people we interact with. That definitely sounds like you need to have a lot of insight into what everyone is trying to prioritize and, and think through. But in the last few minutes of the podcast, uh, we actually want to switch gears a little bit again and maybe and ask you um, something on the lighter side, I think, I hope. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> And this is, actually, there are two questions. And the first one is, uh, what is the worst thing about what you do, about your usual, you know, day at work? Um, and then I follow up with what is the best thing? So just to, just to close up. <laughs> okay, sure. Um, email is a tough part of my job. <laughs> too much of it. Too much. Very hard. Very hard to keep up. But, but more practically, I, I think, you know, what's, what's sometimes the most challenging is to realize that we know a lot as, you know, as researchers, you know, and we are very, you know, because what we are doing is accumulating knowledge, you know, we come into a field and we stay in the field for a long time. And we, as a result of it, we get to know a lot of things in that, in the field. Um, but it, it's frustrating sometimes to realize that, you know, we're not able to always help people apply that knowledge because of those constraints that I spoke about. And so sometimes I certainly feel frustrated about that, you know, to say that we've known this for a long time, we've known nutrition is multisectoral, we, we know we need to resolve poverty if we want to tackle undernutrition, you know, why do we still think we can do, you know, do this so easily? There are no quick fixes here. So sometimes that's frustrating. And I think the, the flip side of it, you know, the, the best part of the job, I mean, for me and at ISPRI and with the kind of colleagues and collaborators that I have around the world, you know, I would just say the best part of my job is the people that I work with. You know, I have, we're a, a very internally not competitive work environment. Uh, and, you know, I encourage everyone when they're looking for jobs to find, you know, institutions, if you can, if you can figure out what the internal space looks like in terms of collaboration versus competition, if you can find a place where people collaborate internally, you will do yourself great favors because then you don't have internal politics and internal competition and you can do a lot of great things together with the people that you work with on a day-to-day -day basis. And that is just absolutely incredible. And then I think the other best thing about the job is just you know feeling like you're doing something of value to something that is bigger than you is, is a very, you know, it's a very rewarding feeling, I think. And, and we get that by, you know, being in, in sort of an active policy environment and seeing people value the data and the evidence that we bring. I think that is really rewarding. Um, so yeah, those are my best and my worst. <laughs> wow. Being able to influence the decisions in policymaking using data and evidence does sound like a rewarding experience. And yeah, find a place that promotes a collaborative work environment over a competitive one, I'm sure this is one advice our listeners, especially graduate students, will find very helpful. 
it was great to learn about your career path and everything you do, how you started off with an interest in the hotel industry and eventually got completely immersed in translating scientific evidence to policies. Dr. Menon, thank you very much for speaking with us today. To our listeners, thank you for listening to this podcast. Stay tuned for more insightful conversations with amazing researchers in the field of international nutrition. And many thanks to Elena Kerki for audio edits and our theme music.